It is good to see that all of us survived our feasting on uh, Thanksgiving Day and uh, I suppose survived Black Friday uh, for those of you that participated. Of course, I know Black Friday is not just a day like Friday anymore. It's kind of Black, what, weekend or Black week or Black month or whatever it might be. Which I suppose if you're a shopper looking for savings, uh, that's a, a welcomed thing. But it wouldn't have been welcome for the people who first coined the phrase Black Friday. Uh, it is found, uh, uh, we're told in the um, historical records, first in a journal called the Journal of Factory Management and Maintenance. Now, if you are a subscriber, just slip your hand into the air. The Journal of Factory Management and Maintenance in 1951 coined the phrase Black Friday to refer to the practice of workers calling in sick the day after Thanksgiving. The writer in the article says, this is a, this is a disease second only to the bubonic plague in its effects. At least that's the feeling of those who have to get production out when Black Friday comes along. The shop may be half empty, but every absentee is sick. Obviously, the uh, meaning has morphed a little bit uh, since then. It's not so morbid. We now talk about Black Friday, you know, being that sort of uh, accounting term where you move out of the red or out of losses into uh, financial solvency, into the black. Uh, It has taken on a, a, a different meaning, but that was its original meaning. And I guess if that was its original meaning, then I don't know, maybe Monday is Miraculous Monday, where everyone is, all these sick people suddenly show up to work again, uh, amazingly better after their uh, struggles. We all say that tongue in cheek because we know, of course, those are not real illnesses and it wouldn't be a real miracle. For all of them to be back. But this morning we, we come back to the life of Jesus and what we have is a real astounding mass healing. A real miracle, a day of miracles, a real miraculous Monday or whatever day it was when we see Jesus on a massive scale healing thousands of people. It comes to us in Matthew 15, 29. Jesus, uh, uh, excuse me, Matthew records this event in the life of Christ in these verses. And it's a passage that's not unfamiliar to us because we've been studying the gospel of Matthew and some of the things that we read here we've seen before. In fact, he describes to us Jesus' compassion for the crowds and how they're bringing their sick and afflicted And if you've been with us through our study of Matthew, that is a very familiar scene. At the very beginning of Jesus' ministry in Matthew chapter 4, we read how his fame was spreading, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great great, uh, crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Later in Matthew chapter 12, many followed him and he healed them all. 
Or even back in chapter 14, you may remember in verse 13, Jesus had withdrawn to a desolate place to be by himself. And when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from their towns. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. So it's not an unfamiliar scene to talk about crowds of people flocking to Jesus and him healing their sick. We've seen this already over and over and over again. And as a matter of fact, not only have we seen him healing people, but as we saw in chapter 14, when they came and they were healed, they also were fed. He fed them and there were 5,000 of them all at one time, miraculously. So as we come to Matthew 15, 29, and we read here about Jesus healing and now, once again, Jesus feeding thousands of people, it's all very familiar territory for us. This is what Matthew writes in verse 29. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee, and he went up on the mountain and sat down. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And he, he uh, excuse me, and they put them at his feet and he healed them. So that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I'm unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied, and they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. Matthew records this historical event, uh, which was a remarkable day, even if somewhat familiar for those of us who have been reading the Gospel of Matthew. And yet we can surmise by reading it that those who participate in it may not have fully understood what they were involved with from a historical standpoint. They wouldn't have really understood the meaning of what was going on. They might have understood on a personal level. They may have understood that on a personal level, their life was being changed or the life of their family member or their friend that they had brought to Jesus was being radically changed. They, they were born lame and they were walking. They were born blind. Now they're seeing and their life would never be different. So on, a, on an individual level, they might have comprehended and understood something of the meaning in their personal life, but but. The bigger picture, I'm not sure they really understood what was going on, what this was all about, what this really meant. But while they didn't understand, you and I dare not make the same mistake. 
We need to read this and we need to understand this isn't just a, a, a you know an interesting story about a a, a powerful individual. This isn't you know just some sort of a, a fairy tale. Certainly, we need to ask ourselves: What does all this mean? What is the significance of all this? Not for those people only who are involved, but for us, for the whole message of Matthew. For the whole gospel that's conveyed to us, why, why do we have this story? What does it mean? Well, we're going to try to answer that this morning by breaking down what we see in Christ's ministry to the multitudes here and what it says really about His promise of salvation. And, and we can begin to understand some of it by taking note, first of all, of how Jesus restores their broken bodies in verse 29 through 31, how he restores their, their broken bodies. And, and really, even before that, we probably should begin where Matthew begins by, by situating where Jesus is in all this, because Matthew tells us in verse uh, 29 that Jesus went on from there. And if you were with us last week, you, you understand that that refers to Tyre and Sidon, where Jesus had just healed a Canaanite woman, remember, he had gone out of the Jerusalem, excuse me, out of the uh, uh, territory of Israel, up into the uh, area of modern-day Lebanon, near Tyre and Sidon, to get away, not only from the political pressures of those who were trying to destroy him, the religious pressures of the, of the Pharisees and scribes who were always criticizing him, but to get away for some personal time with the Lord to refresh his own soul because he clearly understood what was ahead. He clearly understood that he was transitioning to a, a time when the crucifixion was right in front of him months away. And so he had gone away to try to deal with all that uh, sort of grief and sorrow in his own soul, as well as to just sort of get some relief from some of the pressures uh, down in Galilee. And now we're told that he has moved on from there. And Matthew just simply tells us that he walked beside the Sea of Galilee and went up on the mountain and sat down. Now, that's a fairly general statement. Galilee, obviously, is a big lake. And uh, he could have been anywhere. We know his hometown, Capernaum, was on Galilee, and other places he ministered were in Galilee or on the Sea of Galilee. But we pick up some details by looking at the other Gospels, particularly Mark, because Mark is not so vague. Mark tells us that when he was up in Tyre, that he didn't travel directly down to the uh, normal places of ministry in the Sea of Galilee. They actually... He turned eastward and traveled what would have been far above the top of the Sea of Galilee and then turned south and came down to what was known as the Decapolis. And if you uh, know your geography a little bit, uh, you would understand that places him in, uh, in the, the, what is today known as the Golan Heights, the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee which uh, really for the most part of Israel's history was never really Israeli territory. Even today, it's uh, you know, sparsely settled with settlements. But, but in those days, it wasn't Israeli at all. I mean, it was the, the, the Decapolis were, were these cities, these 10 cities, that's what Decapolis means, that were largely pagan cities. 
They kind of fell outside of Israel's territory. They were south of the territory of Philip the Tetrarch. They were sort of north and, and uh, uh, east of the, uh, the area of Herod, uh, uh, Herod uh, Antipas. So, so they were outside the territory of Israel, really kind of self-governed little cities that all were known or thought of together. And all of them there on that eastern shore. And that's where Mark says that Jesus went. And, and he wasn't in the city. We're, we're, we, it's very clear as you read the passage, he was in the wilderness. He was out, outside the cities, but in that region. In fact, Matthew tells us he went up on a mountain. And since we, we kind of have an idea of Mark, where he is, we now have an idea of what mountain he's talking about. If you've ever been to the Sea of Galilee, you know the steep cliffs that kind of rise out of the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. These massive uh, 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 hills that, uh, or cliffs that really that kind of level off in a plateau on the top from which you can look down and see the entire basin of the Sea of Galilee. But up on top, they're just basalt rock and limestone and just barren up there. That's where Jesus was. He was on the top of the Golan Heights. He was up on top of this mountain whenever he uh, enters into this scene. And not only that, Matthew, excuse me, Mark also kind of tells us how this unfolded a little bit. Because he didn't go there in order to attract a crowd. He didn't go there just like he didn't go to Tyre to meet anyone. He was still trying to get away, but we're told in Mark that along the way, he encountered a group of people bringing their deaf friend to Jesus. And they implored Jesus to heal him, which Jesus did, seemingly reluctantly. He takes him to the side and has a little private event. He heals the deaf man, and then he tells the deaf man very strictly not to tell anyone. Don't spread this abroad to which he promptly disobeys and Matthew, excuse me, Mark tells us that he went out and zealously told all of his friends exactly what happened to him so that now the people begin to stream out of the cities of the Decapolis all gathering to Jesus so that they might experience the same kind of healing. That's the background, that's the scene. Now, in all that, what we, what we understand is that these are not Jews. These are people from Gentile, from pagan, from idolatrous territories, from idolatrous cities. This was the same place where Jesus had cast out the, 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 the demons out of the, uh, uh, the gathering demoniac. This was a, a, a pagan group of people. They... They uh, ate different food. They had different religious practices. They followed different rules and rituals. They had different morals, different religion altogether. They were nothing less than pagan, idolatrous, unclean, all the things that Israel would have associated with them. And from a spiritual standpoint, they were dark. 
No truth, no light. They hadn't been raised under the law of God. They hadn't been brought up to follow the moral code of the Mosaic law. They hadn't been brought up with all of that stuff that Israel would have been familiar with. These were people who were in their practices perverse and in their mind darkened. And yet here they are coming to Christ. And even though he, remember, he told the Canaanite woman, that he had not been sent to people like this. He had been sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. You remember that from last week? And yet because she pleaded with him and pleaded with him, she's not a Jew, but she pleaded with him, even that she could have the crumbs of the table that fell from whatever he was serving up to others, she pleaded with him and he eventually gave in and healed her daughter. And now he finds himself surrounded by Gentiles, massive amount of Gentiles, And he's healing them, showing that he's willing to give more than just crumbs, more than just a few leftover scraps to a few leftover people. He was willing on a massive scale to bless even the Gentiles. Not that he was seeking this out, as I said. He he had kind of just found himself here out of out of a expediency of trying to get away. He wasn't seeking this out. He was trying to avoid the crowds. But they were coming. And as they came, the apostles watched. And what they saw was a man who was willing to offer more than just crumbs to the Gentiles. And as they would come to understand... God was extending His grace not to the Jews only, but also to the nations. And they'll be commissioned to do that at the end of Matthew. Now, Matthew tells us that these people were coming and they were throwing their friends and their, their uh, uh, family members at the feet. That's literally the word, throwing them. Not, not that they were rough with their friends, but this was a sign of their desperation. They were casting their friends at Jesus' feet. And the crowd saw his healing power. They saw, Matthew says, the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, the blind seeing. And they glorified the God of Israel. That, That was their conclusion. That was their understanding. This had to be the power of the God of Israel. This is unrivaled. Power, unrivaled with anything they have seen, certainly not something they had seen in their polytheistic religion or their pagan priest or their teachers, nothing they had ever encountered or heard about in their ancient rituals or practices or ideologies or teachings. They they hadn't ever been offered anything like this, anything like this, a God who healed everyone who came to him. This was unlike any God they had ever heard of or imagined, unlike anything they had ever dreamed of. So they were marveling, and they were recognizing the uniqueness of this. This was unlike anything else they had found in their society or in their world. This had to be the God of Israel. And this went on, verse 33 tells us, for three days. 
Three days, which I'm sure involves some teaching. When Matthew says he went up on the mountain and sat down, that was the that was a natural posture for Christ's teaching. So it probably implied that he was healing and he was teaching. He was healing and he was teaching. He was trying to to explain to them the implications of everything that he was doing. And over the days, I'm sure more and more people were coming. They were climbing up those cliffs and up those mountains, making their way up to join the crowd. And as they approached, they would begin to hear the murmur and the chatter of all the people. They would hear shouts of people who were receiving their voice for the first time ever or their eyesight for the first time since they were being born. They would walk along the way and they would see scattered along the ground, I'm sure, the poles and the sticks of all the lame people who had made their way to Jesus and been healed and no longer needed all of that apparatus. They would see the beds and the, and the stretchers and the cots that were just laying on the ground where people had been brought to Jesus that couldn't walk and now they were leaping. And as they made their way into the crowd, they would have, I'm sure, felt the, the energy of what was going on, the crowds and the excitement as people were chattering among themselves. We've never seen anything like this. We, we, this must be the God of Israel. This is so different from anything we've ever heard of. Marveling, Matthew says. They were marveling at what was taking place. But it doesn't answer the question of, do they really understand I mean, it's one thing to marvel, but do you really understand? I know it's not a perfect analogy, but sometimes I like to watch um, Olympic uh, gymnastics. And, uh, and I marvel at some of the things that these gymnasts are able to do, but I mean, I wouldn't even begin to say that I understand what went into all the preparation, not to mention all the wear and tear on their body that allows them to do those kinds of things. I just, I just kind of emotionally react to it. Well, these people were probably just sort of emotionally reacting to what was going on, but, but very few of them, it would seem, went much beyond that. They didn't ask, what does this mean? Why? Why, why all of a sudden are people being healed? Why hasn't this happened before? And why are they sick to begin with? Why, if you have this healer here and he's doing all this, why Why have they gone through their whole life not able to see? Why have they gone through their whole life not able to hear? Why have they gone through their whole life not able to walk? Why? What does all this mean? Do they really understand? Well, this was, to sum it up, this was the evidence of a powerful reversal. A massive reversal. A huge undoing of all the effects of sin and the fall of humanity. That's what these healings represented. These were the undoing, or if you want to think about it from a positive standpoint, they were the delivery 
or the fulfillment of the promises of the Old Testament to undo all the negative effects of the fall of humanity, which were massive. Those effects, those consequences were massive. The, 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 the Scripture teaches us in the Old Testament that all the affliction that you and I suffer, that all the disease that you and I suffer, that all of the, uh, the, the, the pain that we go through in our bodies, all those things, they all have a single ultimate source, and it is a curse. A curse that has come upon not only men and women and humanity, but a curse that has come on the entire universe. Every atom... Every molecule, every bit of matter in the universe has fallen under this curse. This is not the way God created the world. He didn't create it cursed. In fact, He created it blessed. He created it without disease. He created it without suffering. He created it with no birth defects. He created it with no broken bones, no damaged limbs. Human bodies were healthy and they were strong and they were equipped and fit and capable to live in this world without suffering. But temptation came. And with the temptation, Adam and Eve gave in And they fell into sin. And through them, sin entered the world. And through that sin came all death and decay and disease and corruption. A curse. A curse that not only affected them, a curse that affected everything around them and every person who would ever be born after them. In fact, they, they multiplied the corruption as they multiplied their descendants, their children, and the curse multiplied and the suffering multiplied. All that, all that was the undoing, if you will, of the world. But here's the deal. God promised to reverse all that. He promised over and over again in the Old Testament He would reverse all that. He would reverse everything that happened there. He would reverse the sin. He would reverse the guilt. He would reverse the consequences. He would reverse the corruption. He would reverse the death and the disease and the weakness. And He would do all of that By first of all, wiping away our guilt, the very cause of all the corruption, the sin. He would wipe away the stain and the blame and the liability and the condemnation that resulted from that sin. And having done that, he would wipe away the consequences of that that curse. He would wipe away death. And along with it, he was going to wipe away all, all the ailments and all the afflictions. In fact, he promised to give us new bodies in a new creation, in a new world. Bodies that no longer needed to be healed because they had been made new. And hearts that no longer needed to be forgiven because they had been cleansed. They were purified. They were clothed in the righteousness of God. Now, this is what the Old Testament Scripture, the Jewish Scripture, had promised. 
And any person who understood the Jewish scripture would understand some of these promises. But these were Gentiles. These people hadn't been raised reading the Bible. They hadn't been raised in the synagogue hearing all this. They didn't know much, if anything, about all these promises. But these were the promises of the Messiah, which just simply means the anointed one in Hebrew, which we translate uh, into Greek as Christ, the anointed one, the, the chosen one, the appointed one. That's Jesus. He comes and this Messiah was going to deliver all of these promises, the reversal of all of these curses. And you read about it in passages like Isaiah 35. The wilderness and the dry land will be glad. The desert will rejoice and blossom like a crocus. It will blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. And they will see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. So he's talking about the natural order. The, the desert lands, the wastelands are going to be made productive. They're going to generate produce. They're going to generate food. They're going to generate water. He goes on in verse 4, Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. And in verse 5, he says, There's going to be a renewal of our natural bodies. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then those... That, will, that are lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy for waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert and the ransomed of the Lord will return and come to Zion with singing and everlasting joy upon their heads and they will obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing will flee. This is total renewal. Renewal of the physical creation under a curse. Renewal of our physical bodies under a curse. Complete renewal. And most importantly, renewal of our hearts. Salvation. So that all sorrow and sighing is gone. Now, as I said, this is not the first time we've seen this in Jesus' ministry. He's healed before. And Matthew has quoted these passages before because Matthew clearly understood, just like Luke understood in Luke 7 or Mark understood in Mark 7 and 8, they all clearly understood that the physical healings were the beginning of the fulfillment of these physical promises. They were just the beginning. There's more to come, obviously, but this was the evidence that this man, Jesus Christ, is the one who is bringing these promises. And these are the outward manifestations of his capacity, his ability to bring all of this reversal of the curse of creation, reversal of the curse of humanity, reversal of all the diseases and afflictions, reversal of all the guilt and the sin. In fact, Matthew's description right here in Matthew chapter 15 includes basically the same diseases that, Ma that, that Isaiah 35 talks about. The blind, the deaf, the lame, the mute. Those are exactly the words from Isaiah. They're almost verbatim out of the Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. Seems clear that this is 
what Matthew's referring to. Just like back in chapter 11, Matthew 11, when he talks about the healings of Christ there, he immediately quotes again out of Isaiah and some of these physical promises to show that the physical healings were manifestations of the physical promises. Now, that's not the whole picture. Because in order to undo the physical permanently, you have to deal with the spiritual but these were foretastes. These were evidences of what was to come. But it would seem, like so many in Jesus' ministry, the crowds here, at the end of the day, they settled for the temporary. They just kind of got involved with Jesus for these few days. They enjoyed the temporal benefits, but they never seem to understand the message and never seem to accept His truth. Most of them, at the end of this time, probably went back to their pagan beliefs and back to their sin. Back to their perverse lifestyles. Still cursed. Still uncleansed. Temporarily healed, but still under the condemnation of their guilt. They'd walk away with short-term benefit, but long-term, they would miss the spiritual work that was necessary in their hearts. And so the sad sad thing is that when Christ does ultimately bring His kingdom, and He does finally and fully establish all of these reversals in the heart and life of people and around the world, these pagan believers, they probably won't be there. These three days up on the plateau, it's as close as they'll ever get to the kingdom. They're like so many sinners. They enjoy the benefits of being around God's people. They enjoy the sort of overflow of His blessings Maybe if they've been born in a Christian family, they've been raised in a Christian home, or they're married to a Christian spouse, they kind of enjoy the temporal benefits. They don't, in other words, they don't experience the consequences, all the consequences of their sin the way others might, but they're satisfied with just those temporal blessings. And they never really press through to the lasting spiritual need that they have until finally and ultimately the guilt of their sin catches up to them. Well, that's what was probably taking place here. But the evidence that we pick up is that for anyone who's willing to accept it, Jesus was willing to work in anyone's life. Jew or Gentile, raised in the synagogue or raised in a pagan temple, coming from a moral background or coming from a perverse background, he was willing and he was prepared to deliver on the kingdom promises. Now, we get even more insight if we keep reading in the text and find out in verse 32 how Jesus responds with compassion. We see Him restoring their bodies. But this is, this is sort of the cutaway, if you will. I'm, I'm, I always like those, those diagrams that show you 
you know, particularly for me, cars, you know, the outward body, and then you kind of slide a little bit and you kind of see what's underneath. Well, now we're seeing what's underneath here in Christ. And what we see is compassion. Matthew tells us, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat and I'm unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. He knows they have a treacherous trip down the cliffs, down the hills, back to their cities. He knows they've been with him three days on this desolate sort of uh, barren limestone plateau with no food to gather. And he is moved with compassion, even for this momentary temporal thing, even for one day, he's moved with compassion. In fact, it's a very strong word, splagna is the word for compassion. It, it literally refers to your intestines. We might say Jesus was emotional in his gut. He experiences deep emotion, deep compassion for these Gentiles. He, he's no, he knows who they are. He's not oblivious to the way they've lived. He's not even oblivious to what they're probably going back to. He knows that they are living in pagan and corrupt cities. He knows their thoughts are probably corrupted by all of their false beliefs. He knows that their practices are informed by their dark and demonic religion. He knows that they're perverse in all those ways, but none of it prevents him from this deep sense of compassion for their plight. For what they're suffering, even if it's self-inflicted to some extent. He has compassion, which, by the way, that is the dominant, dominant picture that we have of Christ. When we're told about the emotions of Christ, we're told once or twice that he was angry. We're told that he feels sorrow. We're told that he feels zeal. But far above all of those, the dominant expression that we're told about in the life of Christ is his compassion. Nine times in Matthew's gospel alone, we're told that Christ was moved with compassion or mercy, as it's sometimes translated. He was moved with mercy and compassion by what he saw in the suffering of people around him. And it wasn't just his friends and his, his family and his associates. He felt compassion for tax collectors and prostitutes, for Gentiles and pagans and sinners. J.C. Ryle writes here, he says, it ought to encourage all who are hesitating about beginning to walk in God's ways. Let them remember that their Savior is full of compassion. He will receive them graciously. He will forgive them freely. He will remember their former iniquities no more. He will supply all their need abundantly. Let them not be afraid. Christ's mercy is a deep well of which no one has ever found the bottom, end quote. This, this, is, this is what the cutaway shows you. This is what is generating him, working 
in the lives of these Gentiles, in the lives of these pagans. And again, it's also what you hear about in the Old Testament. This was a part of the renewal, by the way, because the corruption that came as a part of sin, it doesn't just touch your own heart and mind, and it doesn't just touch your body with ailments and afflictions, and it doesn't just touch the created world around you with the chaos of storms and and all kinds of plagues and famines. It goes even to the level of the governments, the societies around you. Everything is corrupted. Everything is touched. And so you and I live in this environment where there's not always a lot of compassion. There's not always a lot of sensitivity. But one of the driving principles that we read about in the Old Testament when we read about this coming kingdom is that it's going to be headed up by a a king by a Messiah who is going to have compassion. And many times this is set in contrast to all the other leaders and rulers and, uh, and societies that people find themselves in that are dominated by self-interest, uh, self-interest or indifference or corruption or cruelty. Ezekiel 34 would be one example where Ezekiel is told, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel, prophesy and say to them, oh, even you shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not the shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you've not strengthened, the sick you've not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, but with force and harshness you rule them. So he's just just saying this this is what has become of Israel's society. This is what has become of their leaders, not to mention all other nations. There is no concern for the welfare of the weak. There's no effort to strengthen them. There's no uh, attempt to tend or heal the sick or no ability to do so. No one's binding up the injured. No one is seeking out the lost or the disenfranchised. It is just harshness and force and brutality and self-interest. But Ezekiel goes on to say, or the Lord goes on to say in Ezekiel, that he's going to provide them with a different kind of leader. A shepherd who will shepherd my sheep. In fact, he says in verse 15, I myself will shepherd my sheep. I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak. I will feed them in justice. This is all part of the restoration. He's going to restore not only their physical bodies, He's going to restore not only creation, but He's going to restore a level of righteousness and a level of equity and a level of fairness and a level of respect within society. And this is what people were seeing in Jesus. This... this, Uh, perhaps struck them as much as anything. Here is a true shepherd. Here's someone who's actually troubled by their suffering, moved with compassion to help them. Even, as I said, even just one day of them going 
here without food back to their villages. He, he didn't want to tolerate that. He couldn't ignore their plight. He saw it. He was burdened by it. He was grieved by even their hunger. He was grieved to see them uh, lost as they were, afflicted as they were, even by their own weaknesses, feeding on worthless ideas, following foolish schemes. It grieved him to see them trapped in their patterns of sin and enslaved to their own desires, inflicting pain on themselves because they've turned away from God and turned to their own way. All those things, they cause him to be moved with compassion and he wants not only to heal them, he wants to feed them. He wants to heal them in body, but he also wants to heal them in their inner man. He wants to feed them physically, but he also wants to feed them spiritually. And all this is just a preview. This is just a preview of what was coming in his kingdom. A kingdom where God would provide every person in the kingdom filled with abundance because the whole world is renewed. Because all, all sections, all corners of the earth are made new, are flourishing. And even now, even in this time in Jesus' life, He's grieved. He's grieved that they're going another day without food. I'm sure He's grieved now. It grieves God to see people suffer. It grieves Him that they go hungry. He's moved with compassion for the scattered and the lost and the hurting and the vulnerable and the hopeless. He is seeking. He's still gathering. Because that's who this Messiah is. He is compassionate in that way. All this leads to the final scene where we see Christ not only you know, restoring their bodies, not only responding with his compassion, but he relieves their hunger, we see in verse 33 through through 38, which helps us to understand this promise of salvation even more. Because, you know, while this is very familiar to us, there are still some important insights to pick up. This the scene of him feeding thousands of people, which obviously is like the one back in chapter 14, verse 13, where he fed the 5,000. I mean, you could hardly miss the parallels. In both cases, Jesus had withdrawn by himself to a, a lonely place. In both cases, the crowds approached him. In both cases, Jesus was moved with compassion and heals them. In both cases, he states his desire to feed the people before they leave. In both cases, the disciples respond by saying that there's not enough food. And I know some people read that and they think, well, how in the world? I mean, they just, they just a few months earlier had participated in this, in this event where Jesus fed 5,000 people. How in the world now, here in Matthew chapter 15, how could they just look at Jesus and say, well, there's not enough food. Oh, we have seven, seven loaves and a few fish. How in the world could they doubt so quickly God's ability to provide? I mean, I don't struggle 
understanding that since I doubt it, even after he's taught me lessons so clearly. But probably what was going on is this was three days. The other event was one day. They might have expected Jesus to do this the first day, but he didn't. And maybe the second day, but he didn't. And now here they are on the third day and Jesus hasn't fed them and they probably have already assumed that he's not going to feed them miraculously. So they just answer, well, we only have seven loaves, two fish or a few fish. Which is also a similarity here, small amount of food. In both cases, Jesus has the crowd sit down on the grass. In both cases, he blesses the food. In both cases, he distributes it directly to the disciples who in turn distribute it to the crowds. And in both cases, the crowds are satisfied and they take up abundant leftovers. There certainly are a lot of similarities. It would be hard to miss the parallels. They seem so intentional. But there are differences Differences enough to understand that these are not repetitions of the same event. I mean, for one thing, in the first case, there were 5,000 men besides women and children. Now there's 4,000 besides women and children. Both obviously have, when you add in the women and children, probably in excess of 10,000. But the point is the numbers were different. In the first case, there were five loaves and two fish. Here there are seven loaves and an uh, indiscriminate number of a few fish. In the first case, they took up 12 baskets. Here they take up seven. So clearly they are different. This isn't just some sort of um, mistaken, misplaced story in the manuscript of Matthew. But the most important difference is that in the first case, they were Jews. In this case, they were pagans. They were not the people you would have expected to receive the compassion and the blessing and the provision of Jesus. I mean, we've noted many times as we've gone through Matthew how how dark some of these societies were, how perverse some of their practices were, how debauched some of them were. They lived in pagan societies dominated by open and flagrant sin. Their moral code was confused and corrupted. Their hearts were darkened. And yet Jesus offers to them basically the same grace and the same mercy that he offered to Jewish crowds. That was where his ministry initially focused, just like he told the Canaanite woman But now as the crucifixion gets closer and closer, he's signaling that his message of grace extends to any and to all who are trapped and afflicted by their sin. With all that, we understand a little bit better now what all this means. It doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter how you have lived. It doesn't matter how empty-handed you are when you come to Christ. He's not asking you to come with all the food to feed your belly and all the right answers to solve the riddles of your soul, to untwine all the anxieties of your heart. He's not asking you 
to come with your hands full. He's asking you to come with your hands empty and your heart empty so that He can fill it. He just wants you to come absolutely convinced that He has the power to make you new, to restore you, to fill you in your emptiness, to cleanse you and forgive you, to make you a new person, spiritually to do it and one day physically in His kingdom. That's all He asks. Jew, Gentile, doesn't matter. That's all He asks. You come and He's the Savior that you need. Father, thank You for an understanding. Thank You that we don't just read these events as some fascinating story, but You have given to us the full revelation of Your truth. We know the source of our corruption, our pain, our sorrows. We know where those come from. And we know that You have the power to cleanse us from the sin and the guilt that has made us subject to all of that. We pray this morning for those who are here today who are still in that world. They're still in that place. The sorrows of their sin plague them. The frailty of their body It grips them with fear. All the harshness of this world has beat them down. I pray for them this morning that they would come to the Savior believing that He is the one who makes all things new. And for those of us who proclaim that message, may we proclaim it with boldness to any and all, no matter who they are, because we are burdened and moved with the same kind of compassion as our Savior, feeling the plight of the weak, the pain of the afflicted. May we, no matter what the background is, may we proclaim the gospel of power to a lost and dying world. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.